We are going to go ahead and get started. So if you can, grab a seat. So I love that Marge brought up the Olympics. Anybody here been watching the Olympics? I I love the fact that this year you actually get to watch some of the things live, so you're not finding out hours before. And I understand that, you know, you can't stay up for everything, but... um, I've, I've enjoyed watching them. I always enjoy watching people at the peak of their ability doing things that I could never do, regardless of how much time I put into it. And um, I was actually watching the Olympics. At the, right before the opening ceremonies, they had a guy who uh, is kind of a, a foreign correspondent who works in that particular region of Asia who was explaining some of the historical significance about the fact that the Koreans, both North and South, are competing together on the women's hockey team and had walked in together. And he said, this is, this is an historical event. We just don't know what it's going to end up being. We don't know if this is kind of like the first step towards peace between North and South or if this is more kind of the last ray of hope before war breaks out. We don't know. We are just living through an historical event. And I started thinking about how we often don't understand that we are living history until you get a little bit of distance, a little time to look on it. And it made me think about some of the stuff that Jeff has been sharing and what we've been talking about through this series of um, slowing down. It just made me really think about the fact that we, every one of us in here, if we're 10 years or older, have lived through a season of history that will probably rank right up there with Gutenberg's invention of the printing press back in 1440. Because what we have experienced over the last decade has been monumental in the way that it has changed the scope of how people communicate with one another, the ways that we think, the ways that we learn, the ways that we uh, disseminate information. Because back in 2007... Something happened that radically changed the pace of life. 2007 was the year that Steve Jobs released the iPhone out into circulation. And that year, cell phones began to give way to smartphones where you could access the worldwide web right out of your pocket. That was the same year that Facebook went from being just a little campus communication thing on, the, on Harvard to being something that was available to everybody, and it became this massive platform. It was also the same year that this little microblog called Twitter became a national and an international sensation where people began to use it and, you know, to kind of let people know what they were thinking, little 140 blips. That 2007 was the beginning of what his, his historians now call the digital age. And we have been living in the digital age now for about 10 and a half years. And can you imagine, can you remember even what life was like before it? Right? You remember when you used to just stand in a line? You know, it's kind of like you go to the DMV and you're just, or, or Disneyland for that matter. And you're just like, hi, yeah, how you doing? You know, or, or when you used to go to restaurants and you could just start eating your meal after you prayed rather than photographing your food, right? <laughs> a, a couple years back, I actually picked up uh, the, the Born Identity, the book by Robert Ludlum, and I began to read it expecting it would be similar to the movie that I'd seen. And I realized very quickly this is a totally different book because over half of the plot is him simply trying to find a payphone to make a phone call. <laughs> I'm like... This is so lame. It's so different. Like, and you realize, like today, 
We have phones in our pocket. We can contact just about anybody around the world in a, in a heartbeat, but we don't even use them anymore to make phone calls. Instead, if we want to get a hold of somebody, we text them or we tweet at them or we just send an emoji because words are just take way too long or we Instagram them, or whatever it happens to be, we communicate with people rapidly. So it's changed the way that we communicate, but it has also radically changed the way we think and the way we learn. Because studies have shown that it used to be that when you would read something, whether it would be in a book or a magazine or somebody is teaching something, you would pay attention and your mind would begin to store away information, what we would call learning. But now, with the invention of the, the, the web and with the advent of um, cell phones where you can access it, our minds no longer store away information. Instead, they remember the, how to access that information. So instead of learning, like, you know, you may be paying attention a little bit here, but you're also thinking, well, I can always find that information somewhere else. I can always go back through here or there. And because our minds now remember how to access the information, all I have to do is ask Siri. All I have to do is go to that website to find it. All I need to do is go on my Facebook page because I tagged it. I can find it again later. Is it any wonder why when you walk out the door and you can't find your cell phone, you feel like part of your brain has been lobotomized? Because in a way it has. All of your long-term memory is stuck in that little thing that you typically have in your pocket. Anybody here get phantom rings ever? Where like you're standing there, you're like, oh, oh, I get feel the vibration. You're like, oh, wait, I don't even have my phone on me. Right? That's just me. Okay, cool. Anyway, I was just reading an article by uh, a writer for the New Yorker magazine. And I don't typically read the New Yorker magazine. It tends to be pretty liberal and actually pretty anti-Christian. But another pastor, uh, a friend of mine, a guy named John Mark Comer, directed me towards this thing. So I went and grabbed a hold of it and began to read it because it was written by one of their um, contributing editors. And here was a guy who began diving deep into the digital age. He was one of the first responders when cell phones came out and the, the web and he, became, he kind of built this online platform where he would disseminate information and he was constantly checking all the social media. So he was really out ahead of us. And he hit a wall several years back where he just went, enough, I have to disconnect because I'm beginning to see the effect it's having on my life. And so I began to read this article by somebody who is not a Christ follower, would never purport himself to be, in a very liberal magazine. And I just want to, I want you to hear his words because he began to articulate things that I have recognized in my own life. He writes this, we all understand the joys of our always wired world, the connections, the validations, the laughs, the information. But we're only beginning to get our minds around the costs if we're even prepared to accept that there are costs. The family that is eating together while simultaneously on their phones is not actually together. They are alone together. You are where your attention is. Similarly, our oldest human skills atrophy. The GPS, for example, is a godsend for finding our way around places that we don't know. But it has led to our not even seeing, let alone remembering the details of our environment. To our not developing the accumulated memories that give us a sense of place and control over what we once called 
ordinary life. Does this resonate for you? Because it does for me. I find that I am physically present at home, but when I'm staring into my phone, I'm not actually present there. I'm focused on other things. And oftentimes my kids will be like, Dad, Dad, and and they'll have to ask me a question two or three times because I'm somewhere else. Or when I'm going someplace, I'm more focused on following the map on here than I am on actually paying attention to where I'm at. And so I miss out on appreciating the beauty of the creation around me and the places that I'm going. Now, I want you to keep in mind, because I'm going to read a little bit more of what he says, but I want you to remember that this is written by somebody who does not call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. And this is written in a very liberal magazine that quite often is is in, in conflict with Christian worldviews. And yet, this is what he goes on to write. The reason that we live in a culture that is increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproven the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. The smartphone revolution of the past decade can be seen in some ways simply as the final twist in this ratchet in which those few remaining readouts of quiet, those tiny cracks of inactivity in our lives, are being methodically filled with more stimulus and noise. If the churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a fragile, or frazzled digital generation. You just see the ways that, I, and I see this in my own life, how noise particularly my cell phone, fills in every moment of inactivity. Every time I sit down on the couch, my first impulse is to reach for it, pull it out, and do something. Every time I I go anywhere, if I'm standing in a line, I'm not actually interacting with anybody around me. I'm staring into my phone. I'm physically present and emotionally distant. And there's not a single moment of silence and stillness anywhere. And he finishes the essay with these haunting words. I I know this is a lot, but man, he's just getting at it. And remember, this is not a Christ follower, but listen to what he says. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shape shift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. And at this rate... If the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have any souls. We live in an unbelievably fast-paced, loud environment. We're like fish that are swimming in a sea of noise that don't even realize we're wet because it's all we know. And our kids... I think of my kids, six and nine years old. It is all they know. And we are enculturating them into this be distracted, be physically present, emotionally absent, and even in our home because they're seeing their parents do this. They're seeing we self-medicate by checking out. When we're exhausted, when we're kind of at the end, we automatically run to the things that soothe us. And for us, that medication is delivered through our cell phones 
or something else. And I'm not saying cell phones are bad. They do amazing things. But the truth of the matter is we are living in an ever more fast-paced, ever more distracted existence. And by the way, you don't have to go to the New Yorker magazine to hear this. This is everywhere. Another guy, a, a Catholic theologian named Ronald Rollheiser, said virtually the same thing in one of his books when he said, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. We are running after things, running after information, running after every time you hear that chime, every time you feel that vibration. It doesn't matter if you're in a conversation here, your attention is automatically distracted. And so we are alone together all the time. And we are missing out on connecting with God, connecting with one another. And we're distracting ourselves even from being aware of the still quiet voices inside of us, of being aware of what's going on inside because we never give it a a space to listen and pay attention. It makes me think of what Jesus said when he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What does it profit us to have access to the, everything in existence, every shred of information, and know exactly what's going on in all of our friends' lives, and yet forfeit the things that matter most? And so our question that we have been wrestling with over the last couple of weeks and that we will continue to wrestle with over the next several weeks is how can we who are swimming in a sea of noise and busyness, as we as people who tend to skip like stones over the surface of life, only tasting just the surface, but never slowing long enough to to, just rest down into it and actually experience transformation. How can we slow down? Is there some practice that we can use to kind of protect us from just continuing to allow the flywheel of our lives to spin out of control until we wipe out, whether it's burnout or anger or flying off the handle or, or just running to things to, to soothe ourselves. And thankfully, the answer is yes, there are practices. We looked at one last week cultivating silence in our lives. Pastor Jeff pointed out the fact that there, there, there's, by the way, silence there's two different types of, 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 of silence, or, or two different types of noise, I should say. There's the external noise, the noise that we surround ourselves with, the radio in the car, the television at home, the cell phone in our hand, just constantly having you know, TV or talk radio on. There's that noise. But then there's the internal noise. And many of you, when you start shutting off those things that, for some of you who practiced it, when you started shutting those things off this week, probably recognized, oh man, it's still cacophonous. There's so much noise inside. There's so many thoughts running through my mind. It's almost more relaxing just to turn it back on, right? And just keep that constant drip of of noise morphine going. So I don't actually have to pay attention here. We're going to spend some time next week, over the next two weeks, unpacking how to deal with that internal noise. But we also today want to look at another practice, the practice called solitude. And it's something that is crucial to our lives. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those. We've got plenty. 
Now, you guys are probably, as you're turning there, I'm just going to remind you of what's come before, give you a little bit of context. In Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus come down to the Jordan River where his cousin, John the Baptizer, is baptizing people. And Jesus comes up to John and says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, no, dude, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus goes, no, this is right. He was modeling for us. A, 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 a declaration that I am following God, I am set apart for him, and so he had his cousin baptized. And when you guys remember how this happens, right? Jesus goes under the water. When he comes back up out of the water, heavens open up and the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends and alights on him and begins to empower him. Remember, Jesus, who was God in human flesh, had emptied himself of his godhood so that he could be fully human. And then the Father sends the Holy Spirit to, to fill him up and empower him to do the ministry that he was going to do. And then we hear the voice of the Father speaking this blessing over his Son. This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. I've been, as I've been sitting with these verses over the last couple of weeks, I keep coming back to that blessing that God gives Jesus. And, I, and I've particularly been thinking about what Jesus has done to earn that blessing, or probably to be more honest about it, what he hasn't done to earn it. Because this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has not taught in a single synagogue. He hasn't called a single disciple. He hasn't healed a single person. He hasn't cast out a single demon. He's done nothing. And yet the Father speaks words of life over his Son, declaring who he is and what he's about. What a gift. Because Jesus doesn't have to go into ministry looking to try to prove something. Instead, he can rest in his identity as God's Son, knowing that he has been called to be about his Father's business. But do you remember what happens directly after that blessing? What's the next thing that happens? Awesome. Yeah, he's, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Let's pick up this story in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now that word wilderness in Hebrew is eremos. And it is... It is it shows up 48 times in the New Testament. And it's translated lots of different things. Wilderness, desert, the lonely place, a solitary place. And when I think of the wilderness, my mind automatically goes to some dry lake bed with cracks all over the place, just a couple of tufts of, of weed that are kind of sticking up here and there to keep Jesus company. That's where my mind automatically goes. But that is not what the word Aramos is driving at. It might have looked like that. But what it is really pointing towards is the fact that where Jesus went was a solitary location. He was away from people. He's away from civilization. He is alone with himself and God. And so the Spirit leads Jesus into the Aramos, into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 
He was hungry. I would be after 40 minutes. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. Remember, this is exactly what God had just spoken over Jesus during his baptism. If you really are the Son of God, well, then tell these stones to become bread. Prove it. Now, let's look back up for just a second, because this is, this is one of those episodes in Jesus' ministry that has always been very confusing to me. Because it seems so utterly out of character to God who speaks these words of affirmation over his son and then immediately drives him out into the wilderness, away from everybody, where for 40 days he is slowly weakened because he's not eating. And once he's in that weakened state, then the enemy shows up and he begins to tempt him. Using, by the way, exactly the same ploy that he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Because with Adam and Eve, he doesn't start by pointing to the fruit and says, yummy, you want to eat this. He points to God and said, did God really say not to touch that fruit? He's lying to you. He's holding out on you. And, and, and the enemy begins by casting doubt on God's words, God's trustworthiness. And with Jesus, he does the same thing. If you really are the Son of God, did he really tell you that, that he, you're his son and that he's proud of you? Well, then if you really are, then prove it. Turn these stones to bread. Do something to prove who you are. Prove that you are the, his son because the, the scripture says that if you jump off of here, you'll never, the, the angels won't let you touch a stone. So go ahead, jump, prove it. Oh, okay, so you're about doing his business? You want to you take kind of control? You want to build his kingdom? I tell you what. I have control over all the nations. If you just bend a knee to me, I'll let you have them. I'll give you control over all of them. In every way, the enemy begins to point to the very words that God spoke over his son at that baptism and begins to undermine them. And I've always wondered why on earth did God or God's spirit lead Jesus into that place where he would be at his weakest, where he would be at his most susceptible. Did God not trust Jesus? Did God think that somehow Jesus might crumble? And so he just wanted to test him before everything got started. And actually I had a, a pastor friend of mine point out the fact that this is, I, I've been looking at it completely the opposite direction. Because I've been looking at the wilderness, the Eremos, as a place of weakness. And in reality it's a place of strength. Because the Holy Spirit and Jesus' Father knows that the attack is coming. In the same way that he went after an Adam and Eve, he knows he's going to come after the second Adam. He knows he's, he's going to challenge the words that he's spoken over his boy. And so God's Spirit brings him away from all of the distractions of society, brings him away from the distractions and the clamoring crowds that would want his attention and would distract him, brings him to a place where it is just him and his Father with the Spirit. And over the course of 40 days of fasting, he becomes more and more familiar with his father's voice, more and more comfortable in his identity as God's boy who has been called to do his business. So that when the enemy shows up and begins to question, did God really say that you're his boy? Then prove it. He wouldn't be tempted at all to give in. By the way, this is the same way 
that uh, the FBI trains up people who are in uh, counter-forgery division. When they want them to know how to spot a forgery, you might think that they would stick them in a room with a whole bunch of forged $100 bills and say, now you know, Jesus is led by the Spirit into a solitary place, into the Eremos, where for 40 days he spends time with his father. He becomes so intimately familiar with his father's voice and with what his father's heart is about that when the enemy shows up whispering in his ear, trying to sow seeds of doubt, he recognizes them for the bald-faced lies that they are and he says, get away from me, Satan. And he listens. And this is why Throughout Jesus' ministry, over the course of the next three years, Jesus will spend time, he will intentionally, deliberately carve out space to get away into the Eremos. I just want to show you three other examples. Go with me to Mark chapter 1. The, the book of Mark kind of starts abruptly. It just kind of jumps right into Jesus' ministry. And so in the first chapter, particularly the second half of the first chapter of Mark, it tracks one very busy day of ministry for Jesus. And then he and his disciples head over to uh, Peter's home, and there Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so he he heals his mother-in-law. And word gets out to the surrounding people and the countryside that there is a rabbi in town that not only speaks with authority, But he has the power to heal. And so as soon as the sun sets on that Sabbath day and people are allowed to move around, they come flocking to Peter's house to meet with Jesus. And throughout the rest of that night, Jesus is healing people. He's driving out demons. He's he's teaching. It's a very busy day of ministry. And then we read in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went off to a solitary place to the Eremos, where he prayed. Now Simon, Peter, and his companions went looking for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Bro, don't you realize you've gone viral? Everybody wants a piece of you. Come on back, man. It's happening. But Jesus has just spent the morning connecting with his father. He's just spent the morning kind of away from the busyness, the hubbub of life. And in the midst of that quiet time, God has refocused Jesus' focus back onto him and back onto the purpose for which he has sent him. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he replies, verse 38, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also because that is why I've come. I haven't come just to gather crowds. Crowds are fickle. I haven't come just to kind of hunker down in one Galilean town and let the people come to me. This is not the attractional model beginning in first century AD. No. I have come to seek and save the lost, and that means I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to go to the ones that aren't coming just to be fed or to be healed. I want to go to the ones who don't even realize that they are sick. God bless you, Cheryl. Let's go to Matthew, I'm sorry, to Mark chapter 6. So just a couple of verses in, a couple of chapters in. At this point in Jesus' ministry, a couple of things have happened. 
Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, has been arrested and ultimately killed. Word reaches Jesus, and I would imagine that that really affected him. Not only that, but he's been sending his disciples out two by two to go into other villages and kind of share the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. As well as he's, he's kind of entrusted them with the authority to even drive out spirits. And they start coming back. Let's look in verse 30. The apostles, these disciples that he sent out, gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Jesus, it's amazing. Even the demons listen to us and flee. Verse 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Was Jesus busy? You better believe it. He said to them, come on, come by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. Guys, we need a break. Verse 32. So they went by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, to the Aramos. There's that word again. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns to get there ahead of them so that when Jesus landed... There's a crowd of people. Great. This is not so much of an Aramos right now. This will not be as relaxing as I was hoping. I love, by the way, how true to life this is. Right? Have you ever had one of those days where you've just been going a million miles a minute? Work is exhausting. It's been frustrating. And you're just like, I need a break. You're discouraged. You go home just hoping that you'll get a little bit of a nap and you open the door and it is pandemonium inside, right? Your sweetie's trying to calm the kids down and the place looks like a hurricane came through there and you realize very quickly there is no rest to be found here. And you're tempted to try to quietly close the door and go back to work for a little bit of rest, but you realize that would be a cowardly way out. So instead you go, hey, What's going on? And you engage. And Jesus, in this case, engages. He was, he was often busy, but what I love about his heart is he is interruptible. And so we read um, verse 7. Nope, where am I at? Oh, I lost my page. There we go. Yeah, hold on. There we go. Chapter 6. Thank you. Verse 33. Many who saw them recognized where he was going and ran on foot to the towns to get ahead of them. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. He's busy, but he's interruptible. And even though he needs that rest, he engages with them. And he spends the rest of that day teaching and healing. And and ultimately, he ends up feeding some 5,000 people. The day comes to an end, though, and Jesus recognizes even more so now he needs a break. He needs some rest. He needs some reconnection time with his father. And so he looks at his disciples and goes, guys, I love you. Get in the boat and go. I'll meet you where we're going. And then he looks at the people and goes, thank you guys for coming. It's time to go home. Jump down to verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Even after this spiritual high of 5,000 people miraculously getting fed, he still needs that break time. Even more so now he needs it. One last one. Go to Luke chapter 5. 
Nine times in the book of Luke, we, he, we see the word Aramos pop up. Jesus goes to the Aramos to rest, goes to the, this solitary place, to the wilderness, to the desert, to get some connection time with his father. And in Luke chapter 5, we see him heal a man with leprosy, the skin disease. Prays over him, the leprosy goes, and he goes, hey, don't tell anyone, because quite honestly, I'd like to be able to continue to minister, and I don't, if you start telling people, then they're going to do exactly what they did in Capernaum. They're going to just start showing up, and it's going to be crazy. Verse 15 of Luke chapter 5, yet the news about him spread all the more, and so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. This happens again and again and again. Look at verse 16 now. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to the Aramos, to that solitary place. Jesus recognized that the busier his life got, the more he needed time of reconnection. And we see that before he makes decisions, before he calls the 12 disciples out of the crowd of people that had been following him and says, I want you guys to be my inner circle. He gets away to the Aramos and he spends time with the Father and he gets some direction and some wisdom before he goes and chooses his guys. And when his heart is broken because of his cousin being killed, he goes, I need some time in the Aramos. And when, when the people, the crowd start clamoring for his attention, I need some time in the Aramos. And he was intentional about it. It became a part of the rhythm of his life. And the more busy he became, the more he recognized he needed it. And the more he deliberately sought it out. Now, this is what we know as the spiritual practice of solitude. Time in the Aramos, quiet time, is what we have, through the centuries, come to know as the spiritual practice of solitude. Let's, let, can you throw the definition up there on the board for a moment? This is probably a, a good definition, a good working definition, that solitude is intentional, or you could change that to the word deliberate time in the quiet place to be alone with ourselves and with God. Time to strip away the external noise so that we can begin to become more familiar with the internal noise. Because here's what I've found. Until you actually listen to the internal noise, until you pay attention, it won't shut up. But the more you pay attention to it, the more it feels heard, it begins to subside and you begin to find that internal quiet. Last week, Jeff had us spend one minute in silence. And for some of you, that minute felt like a lot of minutes. For me, it felt like just a moment. I could have taken another half an hour of it. Because as I have begun to spend more time in silence and reconnection with the Father, the more I'm finding I crave it. I'm not afraid of it as much as I used to be. I'm not as driven away from it as I used to be. So, we need to intentionally carve out time to spend listening here, but also reconnecting with our Father, becoming more familiar with His voice. And the busier we become, the more intentional we need to be about it. But here's the thing I find in my own life. The busier I become, the less I carve out space to connect with Him. At least that has been some of those seasons where I feel most frazzled and most exhausted. I'm not getting that alone time. I'm going, when I slow down, when things get easier, that's when I'll get it. But the busier we get, the more desperately we need that solitude time. 
I want to just make one thing clear, though. I don't want us to look at solitude as synonymous with isolation. They're two very different things. And in fact, um, there's a guy who's smarter than me. That There's plenty of those guys out there. But uh, he said this, and I think that we might have it. This is from Wayne Cordero from his book, Leading on Empty. Yeah, we do have it. He said, there is a world of difference between isolation and solitude. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Let me read that one more time because this is very important. There's a world of difference between isolation and solitude. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul, a chosen setting yourself apart for a time to rest and reconnect and become more acclimated to what's going on inside. But isolation is what we crave when we have neglected the first thing. And so I've been reading a ton of people and listening to a ton of people who have been kind of talking about this. We, we live in a world that more and more is clamoring for our attention, so we're not getting that solitude time. And so instead, we find ourselves running to other stuff. And I've just been kind of collecting things that, that, that happen either when we get solitude or isolation. Let me just read a few of them to you. In solitude... We can decompress from the noise and chaos and nonstop stimulation of our modern society. And in solitude, we slow down long enough to feel all of the emotions that have been churning inside that we have been running away from, that we have been wrapping ourselves in that cocoon of noise so that we don't have to hear those cries inside. In solitude, we face our insecurity and idolatry and fantasy and our doubts. And it's terrifying. We're going to spend some time next week looking at the reasons why we want to run from these things, run from solitude. In solitude, we acknowledge our longing for God or our lack of a longing for God. In solitude, we give space to the quiet voice of the Spirit to cut through the cacophony of other voices that vie for our attention. And they are myriad. In solitude, we come to a new place of freedom. Our successes and our failures lose their power to define us and we start feeling less driven to earn other people's approval at all costs. And in solitude, we realize just how near God has been the whole time. He may have felt distant because we couldn't hear his voice, but he's been there the whole time. And we begin to get in touch with our true selves. However, when we're not intentional about carving out that space, we naturally kind of fill up our bandwidth and we get to this point where we're just like, enough! I can't handle this anymore. I can't keep running. I need a break. And at that point, we run to solitude's kind of uh, a pathetic imitation of solitude, what, what we call isolation. We just go, I need a break. So rather than running to things that are life-giving, things like connection time with God, 
connection time with one another over a cup of coffee or a cup of, a glass of wine or just sleep rather than running to that kind of stuff. We turn to things that we think can help us mentally and emotionally check out. We run to our drugs of choice that can just help us to anesthetize the discomfort of feeling like we always have to be on. Netflix binge watching, social media, reading food, alcohol, or whatever your drug of choice happens to be. We start running to those things just to help us cope. We'll find ourselves becoming more reactionary. I've seen this happen a ton in my own life. Our bandwidth gets so frazzled. There's nothing, no space left so that when anything deviates from what we expect, whether it's our kids aren't getting their shoes on in a timely manner or our our spouse just doesn't understand what we're saying the first two times we said it, so we snap, or a coworker just keeps screwing up and we finally just unload on them. Because we have no margin for deviations in our life. And since we're not taking the time to slow down and connect with our Creator, we will begin to feel distant from God. We'll begin to even wonder if He's even there. And if He is there, if He even notices what's going on in our lives. And because we're not connecting with Him, because we're not being refilled with our time and connection with Him, we will begin instead to assuage the craving of our soul by latching on to other people and kind of living off the afterglow of their connection with God. For some of you, that might look like, I need to get here to church on Sunday because quite honestly, I just need a hit of whatever Pastor Jeff or Pastor Eric has. I just need to kind of get that little bit of refilling because I'm not getting it the rest of the week. And if that's all this is, it's not enough, which is why we so desperately need to cultivate space in solitude throughout the week. We need to learn how to reconnect with our Father so that you aren't dependent upon somebody else's spirituality. That's a dangerous place to be. And when we're not getting enough solitude, we can easily get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent. We'll get so focused on dealing with momentary matters that we will lose sight of what really matters. We'll become like Martha's running around, doing, 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 and going, God, don't you see all the stuff I'm doing? And he's like, oh, yeah, but, but you have completely missed what's most important. You're worried about many things. So I'm hoping you're getting the point that solitude is an important part of our walk. In fact, this guy, Henry Nouwen, who is kind of a spiritual giant uh, when it comes to slowing down in the spiritual practices, he writes this in one of his books. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Solitude begins with a time and a place for God and Him alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that He is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, then we need to set aside a time and a space to give Him our undivided attention. I mean, this makes sense, right? Any, think of any relationship in your world, be it with a spouse, a friend, a mentor, a coworker that you enjoy being with. Any relationship that is healthy, you have invested by spending time with that person. You've been with them. You've learned kind of what makes that person tick. 
You become a student of, of how they think. And, and even though they may not always think the same way you do, you just by being in proximity, you begin to be shaped by them. And you can appreciate them for who they are. And the same holds true for our relationship with God. If we hope to be shaped by our proximity to him, then we need to be in proximity to him. And we need to recognize how close he is. The reason that we're doing this series is because about a month and a half ago, maybe even less, maybe just four weeks ago, as I was describing isolation and all that stuff, I was describing myself. I was running a million miles a minute. I was coming crashing into the end of a day, exhausted, because there's so many things that need to be done, more than I could possibly get to in any given day. And then I come home and the kids are, wah, and Kathy's like, here. And I'm like, I don't want to. So I find myself constantly throughout the day pulling out my phone and disconnecting into my phone just because I needed a hit of, uh, of something to help me calm down. And then when we finally got him into bed at night, Kat and I are both just like on the couch looking like we just survived a bombing, right? It was just like, and we're like, you want to watch something? Yeah, we can try. So she turns on the TV and then I pull out my phone and I start reading whatever book I'm reading. And don't think I'm more you know, spiritual than you think. I'm reading like Pulp Fiction. This isn't theology. I just need to check out, right? And then she's like, oh, okay, well, you got your phone. So she gets out hers and she's either on Facebook or she's playing a game on her phone. And we are alone together. And we do this for several hours until like 11 o'clock at night because we just need the internal flywheel of our lives to slow down. And then we kind of go, oh, we might as well go to bed. We haven't talked at all. We go downstairs, we brush our teeth, we get in bed, we go, I love you, I love you too. We go to sleep and then we kind of get woken up in the morning with, here comes the herd of water buffalo and they come streaming down the stairs, jump in our bed and we're like, oh, go away. And here we go again, another fun day in the existence of simply surviving. And the truth of the matter is, that's all we were doing is surviving. And I began to realize, man, this isn't the life that is truly life. And so we began to make some changes. I I, I particularly began to make a change with how I spent the evening. Probably the biggest thing is I began to choose rather than those things that I ran to to anesthetize myself, I began to choose to just go to bed earlier because I'm tired. So like at 9, 9.30, we would just kind of shut it down. We would talk for a little bit. I actually tried to make a concerted effort to look Kathy in her eyes and, and find out how her day was going. And then we would shut everything down around 9 or 9.30, go down and go to bed. And this weird thing began happening. I started waking up at about 5 o'clock in the morning without an alarm, way before my boys tromped down the stairs. They've got a little clock in their room that, that turns green at 6.34. I've told them it's 6.30, but they don't know that it's four minutes further because I just need a little extra time. And so I know exactly when my boys are coming out of that room. And I'd be waking up at like an hour and a half before it. I'd be like, how are we doing, God? And just sometimes it's just having that quiet time in bed without getting out and just having a conversation. I had that this morning as I just laid there in the quietness of my room, listening to my wife breathing, and and I just go, God, is there anything you want to say to me? And this morning he began to put different pastors 
names on my heart, pastors around Costa Mesa, as well as some guys that I connected with um, in this conference that I was just at. And I began to pray for them and their church communities. I began to pray for some of the, um, you know, some of our senators and and representatives up in Sacramento because I was just up there earlier this week meeting with them and just realized how difficult it is what they have signed on to do. And so I just began to pray. And then when I kind of get a little antsy, I'll get out of bed and I'll walk upstairs and I'll sit down on the couch. However much time I have, I just spend with him. Sometimes it's reading the Bible. More often than not, it's just sitting there in silence. Eyes closed. And I have borrowed this practice from John Eldridge. After I have kind of allowed the flywheel of my heart to slow down enough where I can where the noise, the cacophony inside subsides. I then ask two questions. First question, God, is there anything you want to say to me? And then I sit and wait. And more often than not, I don't hear much. But I'm just in that posture of listening. So often we think of quiet time as, let me just tell you, God, all the things I need, and you give the laundry list. All right, now here I go, and I'm going to read my one or two chapters of Scripture, and here I go, and it's all noise, 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 even in that, rather than just carving out space to listen. So after about five minutes of sitting silently with that, is there anything you want to say, and then paying attention, I ask the second question. Teen in the morning, around the Capitol building in Sacramento in a place that is very much in opposition in many ways to the heart of the word of God. I am praying for the welfare of my state and of my community. I didn't go looking for that. He just led me there. I love that he does that. But the only reason he's able to do that is because I've, I've given him space to do it. And then, here's, the, here's one of the best parts of this. I get like an hour, hour and a half of just sitting on the couch with my father. And then at 6.34, here they come. And I'm like, oh, bring it. And so now I'm like, come on, guys. And I just put out my arms and they jump up on the couch, sometimes dropping a knee. And I'm like, come on, be more gentle with me. I'm old. I bruise easily. And then they, they just climb in next to me and snuggle. And rather than it being like a, is it already 6.34? I'm like, finally, here they come. I get to be with them. And they are going to grow up, I'm praying, for all of my shortcomings and all of my imperfections, and they're myriad, they're going to grow up seeing their dad taking his relationship with God seriously and seeing their dad want to be with them. And those morning times where I get to connect with my father and I get to connect with my boys is my favorite time of the day, bar none. And it is worth going to bed an hour or two earlier each night for that. Isn't it interesting how the rhythm of our life doesn't always begin in the morning. It actually begins in the night. We'll talk more about that when we get into Sabbath in a few weeks. But here's the point. We need this. Another part of the rhythm that we're trying to build into our lives, Jeff and I have been trying to carve out at least one day a month where we get a little extended period of time 
for, you know, we go to a place that is relaxing and restorative. I find that I hear God's voice way better in nature. So for me, I got to get somewhere where there's trees, maybe it, or, or down at the beach because the pier counts as trees and there are waves. I, I always take my hammock with me. Best purchase I've made in the last decade. I always take my hammock with me because you can always string it underneath the pier. Or if you can find a couple of trees, you're good to go. And I just go walk about. And I just listen. So I hear God's voice really well there. Jeff, you know where he's at. He's at 74th Street with a fishing rod in hand because that is where the Holy Spirit speaks to him. That's where he is, can rest and be restored and reconnected. And I would simply ask you to consider where is it that you find rest? Where is it that you feel like you can hear God's voice? Is there a particular place in your home? Is there, you know, a place somewhere? Do you like being out in nature? I know a lot of people do, but that's not everybody. And so you don't have to do it the same way we do. But begin to ask God, God, where can I connect with you? And then make a point of it. Because here's the point, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We desperately need this. If Jesus, who was God incarnate, was this intentional, was this deliberate about carving out space to connect with his father, then who are we to think that we can do without, right? So let me just pray for us. Father God, we recognize our desperate need for connection with you. We thank you that you made us, you designed us to crave connection. That when you looked at us, the first thing you recognized that was not good in your wonderful creation, that we were alone. Because you made us to do life with you and with one another. And I have recognized the ways that my time in solitude has actually helped me become more authentic and present with the people in my life when I come back and engage back into regular life. Father, may you help us to carve out space. May you help us make some choices in our lives that that help us to find time to be with you. Help us to, to hunger enough to make time to be with you. Would you meet us in those still quiet places? Would you meet us in the aramos of our lives? And may you have your way with us, Jesus. In your holy name, amen. Hey, we're going to just take a few minutes and worship together. And if you need prayer, you want to be available, I'll be up here. Um, Jimmy, would you be over here as well? And then you got Jeff.